perhaps the next time Lily Kate should video and Doug should take the boat ride. We've been looking at the book of Romans over the last several weeks and uh, we're talking about how Romans is relevant to the 21st century. I know that might be strange for you, but obviously Paul understood the first century, the century in which he lived. He was a Roman citizen. He understood the Roman Empire. The things that were happening there, he also understood people. God inspired him to, book, to write the book of Romans, uh, and it was relevant when it was written. Do you suppose that if God could inspire Paul to understand the culture of the first century and to write a book to that culture and also to the church in which that existed within that culture, that he could also inspire him in advance to write a book in which God foresaw what our culture would be like in the 21st century and the needs of the church and the challenges of the church in the 21st century. I submit to you that the book of Romans is that book, and it is very relevant. What we have seen thus far in, in the book of Romans is that there is an incredible brokenness that touches all of humanity. That is the world in which we live. Last week, we contrasted the moral culture and the immoral culture. Uh, perhaps these days we have a little trouble telling the cultures apart, or perhaps it's even worse. The situation is so bad that the immoral culture that once knew it was the immoral culture and hid from society has now replaced the moral culture. And it is those of us who believe in God and go to church and believe in the sanctity of life who have become the immoral culture or the extremists. That's the way the immoral culture in the Roman Empire looked at the church. Uh, the people in the church were the immoral outsiders who with their scriptures and with their gospel offended the prevailing culture. But you will notice in his discussion in these first chapter, in this first, these first chapters of the book of Romans, that Paul never elevates the moral culture above the immoral culture. What he's saying here in, in the book of Romans in these first three chapters is that the whole of humanity, uh, whatever their culture, is about to face the judgment of God. The wrath of God is coming. Last week we saw that unless God does a work in a person's heart, that that person is lost. That person will perish regardless of who that person is. A person's relationship with God is not a matter of genetics, but just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because you're a Baptist doesn't mean you're going to heaven, or a Methodist, or a Catholic, or whatever doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Memberships don't guarantee you a place in heaven. Marks don't guarantee you a place in heaven. And so a person's relationship with God is a matter, matter of a radical change of heart that can only be accomplished by the work of God's Spirit. And so last week we ended in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. I'd just simply like to read those verses to you where Paul said, For he is a Jew, he, who, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, 
and not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Is that not what Jesus was telling Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who came to him by night when Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, I, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, a, a man will not see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Here was a Jew who had been a Jew, who himself was a Pharisee, believed the Bible and taught the Bible, and yet Jesus was saying to him, you're not going to heaven, Nicodemus, without a radical change of heart. Did, not, did Nicodemus not know that this was the, the teaching of Scripture and had been the teaching of the Old Testament all along? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord had said, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may, you may live. So as we've been watching Paul speak to the culture of his day, to the immoral culture and the moral culture, he has one message for them all. We are not just sinful. We are broken beyond repair and dead in our trespasses and sins, helpless and powerless apart from a miracle of God's grace. That was true of the moral culture of Paul's day and of the immoral culture. Listen to how Paul said it in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It's where we begin today with our scripture. Romans 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Talking about the moral culture and the immoral culture. Talking to the moral culture. Asking them to look at the immoral culture. He says in Romans 3, 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, the immoral culture needed no one to tell them that they were sinners. They knew it, but to them, sin didn't matter. And then there was this moral culture that felt because they had their Bible and they had their law, they had their rules that they lived by, that they were immune, void of any need, that is, until Paul read them their own scripture. And you know, that's what sometimes wakes us up. We don't read the Bible, so we don't, we don't know it. We don't really know what the Bible says. I'm sure that some of you may not know that the Bible says what we're about to read. And so Paul just shared with them their own scripture. Remember, when Paul writes the book of Romans, he's like a pastor in his study preparing his sermon. Paul is thinking in his mind about the people to whom he would be writing, those inside the church and those outside the church. And so he's carrying on an argument with them in his letter, trying to convince them of these things that he's saying. Really trying to convince, really understand now, he's trying to convince the moral culture and the, and the immoral culture of their need of something that they don't have, something that they can't have apart from Jesus, and so he uses a rabbinic technique called stringing pearls. That's what it was called. And so what he did was he pulled together a group of scriptures, sort of like a preacher would in a sermon, and he put them together. This passage, we're going to read it, from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, is not one single Old Testament passage, but about five or six different Old Testament passages, most of them from Psalms, all put together to prove his point. And so we read, as it is written. In other words, 
It's in your Bible. Open your Bible and read it. And it's in your Bible too, by the way. There is none righteous, not even one. He's talking to the moral culture. And he's also talking to the immoral culture. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the peace of God they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That might describe you today as you sit here. Comfortably sitting, listening, but this doesn't bother you because this is talking about somebody else. Or perhaps these are just words that are in a book and they really don't matter. But in fact, there's never been a clearer picture of man, a more miserable picture of man than the one painted here. This is you. This is me. That is my heart. That is your heart. Paul's not talking about somebody else. He's not talking about the person down the street. He's not talking about the first century. He's talking about 21st century man. There's no one righteous, not even one. Now, why does that matter? Well, it mattered to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're in the Old Testament. You remember the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? The immoral culture of Sodom and Gomorrah that was about to face the judgment of God? You remember when Abraham was negotiating with God about Sodom and Gomorrah because he was concerned about Lot, who was there, by the way, and Lot's family, his daughters and son-in-law, who all lived in, the, in this, this immoral culture. And, and perhaps Lot and his family were a little bit, perhaps they represented the moral culture. So here's Lot, the moral culture. Here's everybody else, the immoral culture. The judgment of God is about to fall. So Abraham says, God, hey, what if there are a hundred righteous people there? Will you spare the city for just a hundred? And God said, yes, I'll spare it if there are a hundred. And I'm, I'm sort of making these numbers up as I go, but you can get the exact numbers. I think I'm generally right. And so then Abraham said, well, God, how about if there's 50? If there's just 50 righteous people in the city, in this, in this immoral culture, if there's just 50 righteous, will you spare the city on account of the 50? And God said, yes, I'll spare it on the count of the 50. And Abraham says, well, God, what if there's not but 25? Would you spare it on the count of the 25? And God said, yes, I'll, I'll spare it on the count of the 25. And the numbers go down and down and down until, until Abraham gets down around. He says, God, if there's just five. Well, the problem was in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the immoral culture, and in Lot's house, in the moral culture, there was no one who was righteous. No, not one. So think about this church right here. Everybody who sits here today. And we're talking about, by the way, the little boy with his puppy and the little girl with her doll. We're talking about the grandfather and the grandmother. We're talking about you and me. There are not ten righteous people in this church. There is not one. 
And so we think like these Jews. We think because we have a good grasp on Scripture and a good understanding of God, this doesn't apply to us. Let Think again and look at your Scripture. Look at the Scripture in your Bible and let God put you in your place. He says that no one understands. He said there is no one who seeks for God, although God had said, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But no one did and no one does. Paul could say that himself being a Jew, knowing that scripture. No one did and no one does. Not you, not me. Look at verse 12. Paul is closing his case here. He's a lawyer. He's making his argument. He's the prosecution. And he uses that word all. This is God's summation of the whole of humanity, of me, of you, the Jew, the Baptist, the Methodist, in any age or at any time, no one righteous, no one good, no one who will escape the judgment of God. That is a tragic history of humanity. That is why things are the way they are in our world today. That is why we have a clash of cultures in our world today. That is why the good things are not good anymore. Bad things are happening. That's why. Because of this tragic history of humanity, this is us. And there is not one person. Think about it. There, Paul has told us, from chapter 1, verse 18, he has had one theme in his mind. The wrath of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming. There is a day when God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And there is not one person among the 7 billion people on this planet who can avert it. And there is no green new deal that will change the fact that the wrath of God is coming. And Paul said in spite of that, we live in a world that has no fear of God. They have no dread of judgment, no concern that that may fall upon them at any time. They do not tremble at the possibility and have no sense of urgency of their own impending doom. It's true of the immoral culture and of the moral culture. And so we come to verse 20. The moral culture says, well, I've got my book. I've got my law. And I do my best to live by it. I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I hope I'm saved because I'm keeping the law. I'm keeping them Ten Commandments because they sure are important. And you get to verse 20, verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, and Paul says something terrible. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When God drops the straight edge of his law down beside my life, when God drops the straight edge of his law down beside your life, it, it serves to show how crooked you are. It, it paints a picture of one fact and one fact only, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23, by the way. And if that was the only verse in the book of Romans, it would be a sad book. And it's been a sad book up to this point. It's been very negative. And as you listen, you think, Brother Eddie, this is such a negative discussion. This is such a negative sermon. It is negative. We haven't even gotten to the title of the sermon yet. The title of the sermon is in verse 21, the first two words of verse 21. Look at it. Paul says, but now, but now. This is the turning point of, of history in this verse. Verse 21 is the turning point of the book of Romans. It is the turning point of history. But 
Now, the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This turning point of history. Do you know that all of man's history is the spiritual history? Man was created by God. We learn that in the book of Genesis. Man fell from fellowship with God and became helpless and hopeless without God. Not one single one of us in any nation, of any race, of any religion, or any social standing has any hope or would we have hope. But now, Paul says, there is no goodness in me. There is no righteousness in me. There is no, nothing but sin in me. Listen to Paul as he comes to this great truth in Romans 3.23 where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, Paul says, there is a righteousness that comes from God. You don't have any. I don't have any. We don't have any collectively. Paul said in those other verses that we looked at, if you put all of humanity in a sack, they're all rotten. Every one of them. We don't have any righteousness. But there is a righteousness that comes from God. This is the gospel, by the way, and this is probably the most important thing in all of Scripture. Something that we fail to understand, but something that we clearly need to see. And Paul began saying it, and he's finally come back to it in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but now there is a righteousness from God. And according to verse 22, it's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, Romans 3.23 never needs to be read alone. So now we're going to look at Romans 3.23 and 24 together. Romans 3.23 and 24. This is one sentence, and Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the but now. That's what's changed. That's what changes everything. What Christ has done on the cross changes everything. Though we've sinned and fallen short, we may be justified. What does that mean? Well, we could spend a thousand years talking about what it means to be justified, but simply put, it means to be made right with God. I am not right with God, but I can be made right with God. How can I be made right with God? What do I have to do? How many steps do I have to climb? How many rosary beads do I have to spend? How many, how many secret handshakes do I have to have? How many marks on my body? How many certificates for baptism and ordination and all this stuff do I have to have? None at all. He said it is by His grace as a gift. Why does that make me right with God? Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed sin must be punished your sin my sin the people that don't come to church their sin remember we're talking about the immoral culture over here 
the immoral culture that today feels like it's the moral culture in our country, they're sinners. The people that sit in church that used to be the moral country, that used to be on the high road and, the, and, 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 and in favor with society, that's not in favor with society anymore, you're sinners too. We're all sinners. Put us all in a sack. We're all sinners. Sin must be punished according to the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. Sin must be punished. Sin must be paid for. God's wrath must be appeased, must be satisfied. And that's why there's no hope outside me or you for outside, outside me or you but for this message. Because all of my goodness, Paul said, he said about that, he said, you can put it all in a sack. Put all of my goodness in a sack and all of your goodness in a sack and we can put Billy Graham's goodness in a sack and we can put Paul's goodness in a sack and we can put Donald Trump's goodness in a sack and we can stack it up and put Joe Biden's goodness in a sack on top of it. And Paul says in those verses that we read earlier, all together they have become unprofitable. It's a total loss for humanity. But now, but now he said there is a propitiation. Do you know what that word means? It's a big long word. It means simply the sacrifice that satisfies. What does it satisfy? It satisfies the wrath of God. How was the wrath of God satisfied? By the death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. And now, although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they can be justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus because Christ, when He died on the cross, paid for your sins and appeased the wrath of God by His death. Verse 26. Why does, when does it make us right with God? Here's the answer. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just. Just. Fair. Just. We want somebody to give justice, don't we? We want to see justice in our society. We don't want to see fake justice. We don't want to see Judge Judy justice. We don't even want to see Supreme Court justice. We want to see God's justice in our society. We want God to be just. Do you know what God has to do to be just? The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Sin. That's what justice is. So for God to be just, the judgment of God has to fall. It must fall. But instead of falling on you, it fell on Jesus. Now that doesn't mean it won't fall on you. Because it says here, so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Number one, do you believe he exists? Do you believe he ever existed? Do you believe he ever walked this earth? Did he ever, did he ever do anything good? Did he ever heal anybody? Did he ever raise anyone from the dead? Did he die on the cross? Is that not a historical fact? Did God raise him from the dead? Could it be that he might speak to your heart? Finally, when? When can I know this salvation? When can I be set free of the judgment of God? When can I, by the free gift of God's grace, be made right with God? It's back in verse 21. But now. But now. But now. That's the, that's the opportunity. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all can be justified, made right with God as a gift by His grace. So today the opportunity is open for someone perhaps who, who might hear God calling them to, to come. Come because you need to come. Come because you have need of Jesus. Come because the Holy Spirit has made you realize that you are a sinner. Come because you realize you are weak. Come because you realize you are broken. Come because you realize you are lost. And there is no hope for anyone in this room or outside this room or in this world of seven plus billion people who has any hope outside the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no one who is righteous but Him. He is the righteous one. I've had a lot of things going across my mind this week, and some of them have just consumed me. But this morning when I got up, I opened my eyes, and washing over my, my mind and my heart was one single song over and over. It just followed me when I got dressed and as I drove to church, and I told Doug, I said, I'm going to find this song, and it's going to be our invitation hymn today, perhaps by divine appointment for you, for you. So Doug's going to come and lead us in this song, Jesus Strong and Kind. Would you stand? You haven't heard it, but you can sing it, I promise. <laughs> 